0: Good morning, church. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning. I had some technical difficulties yesterday recording at the church. Uh, It was Saturday, so I'm recording this uh, early Sunday morning. A few things before we get started. First is a reminder that we only have a few days left in our Big Give campaign. It's gone really, really well. I've gotten a bit of a heads up on how much money we have raised so far, and I I think you're going to be super encouraged when you hear the total amount. An awesome way to support ministries and uh, missionaries that are dear to us as a church. So in these last few days, please consider how you can give. Any amount uh, helps. Any amount will be a huge support to these missionaries and ministries. Also, I'm going to be meeting with the SLT later this morning to go over our church regathering plan and making sure that all of the protocols are in place for this phase of the BC reopening, which I hope you're as excited about as I am. But it looks like next Sunday could very well be our first chance to regather in person. I think it's going to look a lot like it did in the fall. Two services, uh, you know, limited attendance. But even that restriction might be lifted fairly soon, maybe as early as July, depending on how things go. So uh, we we are at the end of a long uh, marathon and uh, just continue to have endurance and patience. But It's going to be really, really great to gather with some of you uh, next week. I'm anticipating that, God willing, and we're going to put plans in place to do so safely and to do so meaningfully. So I'll communicate that to the church at some point early in this coming week. Okay, let's take a moment to pray. God, we gather before you as your community. Connected through technology, but also connected through your spirit. Open our eyes to your truth. Spirit, use these texts this morning, as challenging as they are, as maybe awkward or um, maybe even frightening as they are, to wake us up, to open our eyes, to compel us into a deeper walk with you. Show Show us your glory, God. Amen. Okay, we are... In the latter stages of our series through the book of Revelation, we're at Revelation 16 today. So I'm going to read through it, invite you to follow along if you haven't already done so in the at-home worship guide. Revelation 16. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, but if you have an NIV or an ESV, most uh, contemporary English translations are going to be pretty similar. I just like the uh, the new Christian standard Bible. I've been using it more revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. The second poured out its bowl into the sea It turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. A third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the spring waters, and they became blood. I heard the angel of the waters say, you are just the Holy One who is and who was because you have passed judgment on these things, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And people were scorched by the intense heat, so they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness people gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they assembled the king's at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air, and with a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other people, sorry, like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstorms, each each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell from the sky on people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail, because that plague was extremely severe. So we're seeing in Revelation 16, these final bowl judgments. We've seen the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, and now we get seven bowl judgments, and they unfold as a series of plagues. A few things to note, there's quite an overlap between the trumpet judgments and the plague judgments, and these again, is is some other um, evidence that we're seeing the same judgments simply from different perspectives, maybe from the perspective of the church versus the world or heaven versus earth. But you might note that uh, in chapters 8 and 11, when the trumpet plagues are released, each of these series in the first four plagues... um, sorry, the first four uh, judgments are plagues that are visited upon the earth and the sea and the inland waters, and then the heavenly bodies respectively. The fifth involves darkness and pain and the sixth enemy hordes come up from the vicinity of the Euphrates. And there's also some not so subtle uh, symbolism that's drawn from the 10 plagues in Egypt, right? You've got the turning of water into blood in the trumpet plagues and in these plagues, and that parallels the first Egyptian plague, right? Moses struck the waters of the Nile, turning them to blood. Uh, The darkening of the sun has its counterpoint with the ninth Egyptian plague, where you have this thick darkness that prevails over the land for three days. Now, how you interpret these bold judgments, how symbolically you take them, literally, when you believe they've happened or are going to happen are obviously, I think as we've been learning dependent on the major interpretational lens through which you read revelation. And there have been four that, uh, you know, at least over 2000 years have, you know, some have risen and fallen in popularity at different times, but where we are now, there are four dominant uh, ways of reading revelation. The preterist that says it's all, actually already happened and been fulfilled in the past, happened very in the first generation after the giving of this book in the first century, the historicist says this revelation has been, these prophecies have been fulfilled throughout history at key points and may still in the future. The futurist says, no, these are almost all going to happen in the, in the future. And certainly these last bull judgments are all, none of them have happened yet. And they're going to happen right before Jesus returns. And then the idealist or the spiritualist says, in some ways, all of these judgments recur throughout history at different times and in different places, but every generation kind of experiences them across the church globally because they serve as warning signs to prepare people, uh, to challenge them to repent so that the final judgment doesn't lead to their condemnation. So again, the Preterist says these bold judgments find their fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem and the overthrowing of Rome in the first century. So the Preterist says Revelation's already been fulfilled. These bold judgments, as we read them, we are reading ancient history. The Historicist perspective actually sees these judgment bowls as being initiated, uh, through the French Revolution, actually. Uh, that's the most dominant view among historicists. And they see all of these judgments being brought to bear against the, pa- the papacy, uh, Rome and the Pope, beginning with the French Revolution, and then maybe some continuing on into the future. The futurist, this is sort of the most uh, pop- popular uh, end times um, constellation of ideas around seven-year tribulation you know rapture of the church seven-year tribulation uh, escalation of judgments and warfare culminating in this final battle of Armageddon as this text talked about this morning so this view says all of these prophecies are yet to happen these judgments are going to happen happen in the future and they're global judgments that are more severe than anything that that has ever happened. So they're taking these judgments uh, quite literally. And they say they're going to have a devastating effect in the um, final months or or years of the seven-year tribulation immediately preceding the return of Christ. Then the idealist perspective says, again, this is kind of fulfilled in every age. Um, The judgment bowls described recur in history repeatedly and they offer a warning to those outside of god's grace that a final judgment is coming they are um an an advanced warning system right like in bc we have this advanced warning system now where you'll get a text on your phone saying you know that there's this emergency and they've been testing it recently because they want people to get a heads up that maybe a severe storm or uh, some kind of catastrophe has happened so that people then can respond in a timely manner and stay safe. And the idealist would say, that's what we're seeing in revelation with these judgments that they're symbolic, but that doesn't mean they're not real. They occur all the time and they will maybe even occur in an escalating way leading up to Christ's return. But their point is to call people to turn from a godless, self-centered way of living. Um, They serve as a gracious forewarning of a coming final judgment after which there will be no chance to repent. I think this is a really helpful way to read Revelation. Again, uh, even if you land on a different view, I think the application of the idealist perspective is really, really good. Because it's a theme that comes through all the Scripture. God um, facilitates disasters and calamities as wake-up calls in our lives. Now, there's some parsing there. Do all disasters and calamities come from God? Or are they initiated by uh, Satan and carried out by Satan, as in the case of Job? And that's a bit of a mysterious area. But the Bible does make it clear that God does send... At times, disasters and calamities. Um, Sometimes to punish, in the case of Israel, their waywardness. But almost always to serve as a wake-up call. One day, these warnings from the backhand of God are going to end. And if we die in our sin, we will die in condemnation. And I say backhand of God, that's a colloquialism that I heard some pastor used a long time ago, you know, scripture talks about God upholding us with his righteous right hand. So the good and the blessing comes from God's right hand, metaphorically speaking, but the discipline and the punishment and the challenge comes from God's left hand. And uh, early on, when Rick came on staff, we went out um, uh, for drinks at, um, at Mike's place and they had a beer called the backhand of God. So, Obviously we had to get it and we had to tell our waitress that we had to get it. And now whenever uh, we host other pastors in town or take them out to a place to drink, we get the back end of God. And I think that's so funny um, as uh, colloquialism. I remember when I heard it, I laugh because we've all had that experience, right? Where we've received deeply of God's grace and mercy and love, but there are other times where God has to be incredibly stern with us to get us back on the right path right? We like sheep have all gone astray. And sometimes that correction that God and the spirit can do in our life is gentle. Uh, but I think if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, you'll also realize God sometimes uses uh, a strong, uh, sometimes painful means through which to get our attention and to get us back on track because the stakes are high in our own life and how God wants to use us in the lives of other people. So these are wake-up calls. These judgments are meant to serve, to call people to repent. And that's why as these judgments unfold, one of the recurring themes that are, that's really um, tragic is it says, but they refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. So these aren't judgments coming upon God's church or God's people. These are specifically judgments coming against those who have turned towards the beast the false prophet and said, I want to worship you. I want to build my life around you. I'm committed to you. One of the really important parts, whenever, one of the important aspects that we will always want to be mindful of when we're talking about, when we're moving through really heavy passages related to God's judgment is to look for God's character in the midst of that judgment so that we don't misunderstand what's happening. And in verse 5 and 7, a few things are proclaimed and reinforced that are really important for us to hear. In verse 5, an angel uh, declares that God is just, right? That God is holy, which means completely separate, not like us, pure, pure. And in verse 7, a voice from the altar says, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And I think this is really important. And I'm not sure it can be emphasized enough, even though I've tried to do so moving through it. God's judgments are not arbitrary. God doesn't suffer mood swings where he just decides to go off on people. God's judgments are are perfectly calibrated to the level of resistance and the level of uh, um, judgment needed. God always operates from a place of holiness and justice and love. When we see God judging, it's not as if God is pausing his love, pausing his justice, and then just uh, unleashing this unbridled fury God is actually focusing his holiness and his love and his justice against evil and those who are participating with evil. And that's really important because when we hear of God judging, we often are concerned that God's going to make a mistake, that God's going to go overboard, that somehow somehow the result of the judgment is going to be God is not fair that we won't be able to say, true and just are your judgments. But those in heaven who see these things proclaim it unhesitatingly, right? At no point in Revelation, when God, when these judgments are being meted out, does anyone say, ooh, like this seems a little bit overboard, God. Like this does not seem in keeping with uh, who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. And I think that's important for us to remember that God is just, God is true, God is holy, right? I mean, these are themes that, of God's character that are imprinted deeply from Genesis all the way through Revelation. That God is good and God is just and God is righteous. Think about these passages that celebrate God's goodness. The Lord passed in front of Moses and the Lord said, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. God is slow to anger, and he's abounding in faithful love and truth. The psalm celebrates the fact that the Lord is good to everyone. God has compassion on all that he has made, and the Lord is good and upright. And therefore, he shows sinners the way. God is good and upright, and God is compassionate. That's why he's sending these forewarnings into the lives of nonbelievers we're seeing in Revelation. But that's why he does it with us. He wants to show us the way, the way to walk, the way to live, the way to trust in him. And God is just. God says, I love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. God's never going to judge in a way where, in a sense, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. In Deuteronomy 32, we read the rock, his work is perfect. Not Dwayne Johnson, like God, the rock, like the the rock. His work work is perfect. All his ways are just. He's a faithful God. He's without bias. He is righteous and true. In Job 34, we read, Indeed, it is true that God does not act wickedly, and the Almighty doesn't pervert justice. See, I think many of us at the level of individuals or as a society, we are exposed to people who have power to judge, to make life-altering decisions, and they pervert justice. And obviously that undermines our confidence that there's any kind of system of judgment that we could unhesitatingly surrender into and say, I know these judgments are going to be just and true. We see so much corruption. We see so much injustice. We experience it. But God says, that's not how I judge. I will not act wickedly. I will not pervert justice. So when God judges, we know that it's actually a true and just and good thing. And God is righteous. This is a major theme of the Psalms, celebrating the fact that the God who reigns over all isn't evil, nor does he even have an evil dimension to his character. He is holy, holy, holy and righteous. You are righteous, Lord, and your judgments are just. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. Psalm 96, he will judge the world with righteousness and his people with faithfulness. And When you add those things together, God is good and God is just and God is righteous. The result is God is faithful and therefore God is trustworthy. The details of how these judgments are going to play out regarding how these judgments are going to play out. We might disagree in them, but we know that they are leading to a final judgment, which is going to be real and which is going to have eternal consequences. And we can wonder what that process is going to look like. And we can wonder how we would ever look at this final judgment to see the totality of it and say, Wow, true and just are your judgments, God. But I think if we're reading Revelation properly, that's exactly where we're going to end up. God is good, God is just, God is righteous, and therefore God is faithful. And that means he's trustworthy. And so in terms of an application for all of us, what do we do with a text like this? I think it's important to drop back to this theme of God's faithfulness, and his trustworthiness. He who calls you is faithful. God's not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, which means a human, that he would change his mind and go in a different direction after committing to do the right thing. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? Then James 1 makes it really clear that every good and perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of Lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. His character doesn't change. God is not good sometimes, just sometimes, righteous. Yeah, a good majority of the time. So for the most part, you can trust God, but not always. No, no, no. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He is holy, holy, holy. That's why he's our rock. That's why he's our foundation. That's why he's our refuge. And so being reminded of that this morning, or maybe hearing it afresh for the first time, what are you being challenged to trust God with right now? At every stage of life, in all of our circumstances, in different ways we're being challenged to trust God, because we can't see the road very far ahead. Maybe we can see the next step, but in a particular relationship, in financial situation, something related to our job, um, an illness or a, a deep personal challenge, where are you being challenged to trust God? And can I just pastorally remind you that he is trustworthy, that he's good and he's just and he's righteous and he's faithful to his people. And so trust and obey even when it's not clear, even when you don't see the plan, even when the road ahead seems completely obscured by fog, will you just continue to trust and obey him in the light that you've been given? A lot of people struggle with trusting God and struggle settling into a sense of, yeah, like I'm, I'm confident in God's goodness and justice and righteousness. And I think it's so important for us to remember and to go back to the cross as a way to anchor ourselves and to confront any deception that would lead us down a path to doubt God's faithfulness towards us. I don't know if you picked up on the grace note in verse 17 as these bowls are being poured out and the final one is poured out. Said a loud voice came out of the temple throne saying, it is done. After all these judgments are poured out, a voice says, it is done. And that's a not so subtle allusion to the cross where after the judgment of God the Father was poured out, on the son who willingly took it on our behalf Jesus said it is finished it is done and that's why if you're in Christ you'll never have to worry about experiencing the judgments of God because the judgments have passed over you because you have been covered with the blood of the lamb But this has serious applications for how we walk with God now. Because while we might recognize this means God died for us, that's amazing. Let's keep pushing into the application as it relates to trusting God. If God died for you, that means his love for you is so much greater than it's almost even possible for you to access. His love is so extravagant he was willing to self-sacrifice on your behalf to absorb these bold judgments so that you could be gifted with eternal life and a new heavens and new earth, pleasures at God's hand forevermore. And that means that when you were lost, when you were hopeless, when you lived without God and without hope in this world, when you lived in condemnation and shame and your hard-heartedness against God or just your ambivalence towards God, when you were hopeless, when you were in rebellion, Jesus died for you. So if Jesus loved you so much that he would die for you while you were in a state of ignoring or rejecting him. Now that you have turned to him and he's adopted you into the family of God and he has set his seal of salvation on you, can't you trust him to carry you through what you're walking through? See, the cross shows us fully and completely that God is good and God is Um, just and God is righteous and that God is faithful and that God can be trusted. And so trust him today with what you're grappling with, wrestling with, what is causing anxiety in your heart. Bring it to him. He cares for you more than you know. So as you move into this new week, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, May you trust our God who is good. May you trust our God who is just. And may you trust in our God who is righteous and reveals this most powerfully on the cross. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said amen. God bless, guys. Have a great Sunday. And... I think we'll see some of you next week. God bless.